Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. If our episode sounds different today, that's because we're recording outside of the studio, practicing social distancing. Joining us today are analysts Sucharita Kadali and Brendan Witcher to discuss COVID-19's impact on the retail industry and what recovery might look like. Welcome both. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. So this might be the most obvious statement in the world, but the retail industry has been hit quite hard by the coronavirus outbreak um, on a number of fronts. But who's been hit hardest um, throughout you know, the past few months here? Well, I'll jump in. I would say that there is no question that um, the companies that have been deemed non-essential, and that's basically really the differentiation is there are essential retailers that have been allowed to stay open, and then there are non-essential retailers that have been forced to close. And this is not just in the United States. This is around the world. And this was a pattern that we saw even early on in Asia in uh, in, in Wuhan. So um, those non-essential retailers, of course, are the ones that are the most challenged. Uh, that said, there are there's a little bit of an offsetting effect that if you do have an e-commerce business, that some of those dollars that you lost in stores will flow to the web channel, but it's not a one for one dollar exchange. So, so just being closed is is a big challenge. Yeah, I'd also add that um, there's there's two other ways that companies have been hit. To a way of looking at it, not just static sort of top line revenue by category, but also, um, you know, what are the kinds of industries that are better prepared to weather this kind of situation? So who's been hit the hardest could be determined as, you know, like restaurants, for example, especially privately owned restaurants. Um, usually those owners don't have, you know, a lot of cash saved up. They're usually operating, you know, maybe quarter to quarter, month to month, possibly. Um, so they're going to get hit harder maybe than a car dealer who might have, you know, a little bit more cash saved up um, while they while they might have capital spend on um, interest and things like that. The other thing to think about are companies that have um, a mix of items. Um, while we've seen groceries certainly grow, um, even those large companies that have a mix of these things, so a Target or a Walmart, you may say, well, they're going to weather it very well. And that's absolutely true. But they've seen a dramatic shift from buying uh, things with 30% margins like sweaters and things like that over to grocery, which usually operates at about a 3% margin. And so, you know, from a dollar perspective, that certainly has hit them very hard, particularly on the bottom line, even if top line sales have, uh, have, have increased or stayed stable. So these are the kinds of things that we need to think about because the devil's really in the details of, of what we're seeing. So to flip to something maybe just as obvious, but Sutrita, you started to go here as well, is, is the shift to the digital channel, um, which is an obvious place to go here. Can you talk a little bit about the changes that we've actually seen and maybe some numbers around that in terms of the shift from the physical um, outlets to the digital channel during this time? Yeah, um, so there are two ways that I would answer that question, Sharon. One is just the percent penetration that we've seen in e-commerce. So at the end of 2019, Forrester's e-commerce forecast had about 17% of all of retail sales um, in the United States being in e-commerce. And that number varies depending on the market that you look at in China. It's more penetrated in a country like India, it would be less penetrated. But we have... 
um, a relatively high double-digit portion already uh, coming into the crisis. And then my estimate for the month of April alone would be that that would go to uh, as high as 25%. So you're going to see a lot more in e-commerce um, just because the stores are closed and the top-line revenue, the, the denominator itself has shrunk, and then you have more share going to e-commerce, so that percent will be higher. So, so that's one shift. But the second big shift is in technology investments and in digital transformation as it affects um, just the services and the solutions that a lot of these companies are now forced to offer. So um, we've been talking about omni-channel as an area of investment for many, many years now, um, but it was still always a work in progress for a lot of retailers. What COVID-19 has done is that it has accelerated a lot of those efforts. We are seeing now um, just retailers that are mid-sized chains literally within three weeks turning on capabilities like curbside pickup or ship from store initiatives, things that would in years past take a long, long time are now happening in a much more compressed time frame because they have no choice but to invest in these these uh, these tactics that help them turn their inventory and get products to customers as quickly as they can, um, and uh, and and recognizing that um, warehouse distribution is is not the most efficient thing at this moment in time. It's so interesting we've learned to almost accept that making that kind of change, especially in a retail environment, just takes so much effort, right? And it's going to take years to make that digital shift. And yet they've been able to do it so quickly. Is it really that simple that it's just a, a do or die kind of mentality and, and that's the only thing that was holding them back? Or are they making other significant changes or, I don't know, grabbing onto new skills much more quickly than they've ever done before. What What's allowed them to go so fast? I would say that um, some of it has just been a tolerance for risk that they've been forced to um, to, to get themselves into. I think that in general, there's the axiom that work expands to the time that you have to do it, right? And in in a time where something is not, it's a nice to have, it's not a need to have, um, you know, there's the, uh, there's the, there, there's the sense that it needs to be perfect. And um, I think that that's really the, 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 what's happened here is that there's just been an acceptance of we just need to get it done and get it get it completed. And I really think that that's actually going to be one of the byproducts of the pandemic that will be a good byproduct, which is the speed of innovation. I think historically traditional retailers have been pretty slow. And this whole episode has um, basically showcased that you can move quickly if you set your mind to it and you don't, um, you, you know, you don't let your own bureaucracy get in the way. And it, and I think that that will be, um, in some ways, it'll be a guidepost for how to innovate in the future. Um, I mean, we already see that approach with, with the large technology companies that are masterful at, at innovating quickly. And I think this is, this is, this is hopefully um, some evidence that that even some of these large companies can can move faster than they think they could. The reality is that many of these companies already had capabilities, um, such as buy online, pick up and store. Uh, about fifty seven percent 
of uh, enterprise class retailers already had these kinds of capabilities. Walmart, Target, many, many of them already had it. In fact, um, Walmart has had curbside for a long time as well. So those companies were very much prepared. The, the companies that were least prepared for this were probably grocers. Um, and, and, you, and you can see that reflected in the fact that there's been lots of media about how people can't get orders placed, there's no slots, even Amazon um, ran out of the ability to deliver to homes. Um, they just weren't prepared for it in that industry. And so companies today who have looked at this and, and they're looking at the um, ways that retailers are surviving are saying, wow, you know, we should have gotten into that earlier, but now we got to expedite that. Um, going along with that, 57% of companies already had it, 23% were looking at doing some form of omni-channel fulfillment in the next year or two. So for that group, I think we've moved a, a little bit forward, and that leaves that remaining 20% who hadn't really thought about doing it in the next few years. They're probably asking themselves, should we at this point? Um, I'm sure there's many of them that do that. But again, to Suture's point, um, I think that this creates some sort of urgency around innovation. Ask yourself, how can we move quickly? How can we move fast um, in order to utilize those stores and all that inventory that's locked in, to, in behind those doors? The retailers that have moved quickly to stand something up in this time, is that a lasting solution or do we feel like it's sort of been duct taped together to serve the immediate need? For a few of them, it is duct taped together. Um, they're utilizing basically online orders and routing them over to stores and, and trying to kind of put together some sort of format. But again, the larger retailers already had systems in place um, that were quite robust. Um, but there are a few companies that are out there that are definitely saying, okay, how do we, how do we enable this? Um, how successful they're being is, is, you know, would certainly be of question. Will they need to relook at that coming out of this? Absolutely. I think even those companies that are being very successful or had solutions before this are going to relook at their supply chain, um, all the way from raw materials down to delivering things to customers. They'll be asking themselves, do we need to continue curbside pickup? They'll be asking themselves, is same-day delivery going to stay at the levels it's at today? Um, you know, because there, there's big question marks. Because the reality is, is that a lot of people say this is the new normal. It's not really the new normal. It's more normal for now. Um, because we are in a situation that the consumer behavior hasn't really shifted. We were forced to change our behaviors. The question becomes how many of those behaviors will we go back to uh, after all this is over? I mean, I kind of joke sometimes that we're probably going to go to zero on e-commerce when we get let loose because no one's going to want to stay home, right? Um, but uh, after that, it's, it's, it is a question mark. As Sucharita pointed out, 25% of retail now is probably at the high end going to be about e-commerce. The question is, do we stay there or do we, you know, peter back to maybe 18, 19, 20%? Again, that would only be about a one, two or 3% lift from where we were last year. That's the big question. So what's the answer? <laughs> well, I know my thoughts are that here's, here's where I think things are going to land. I think the numbers that I gave you are where I think we're going to head. And that would be about a one to two year pull forward um, on that. Grocery is the one that we've seen just a dramatic lift. I mean, before this crisis, grocery was about 3%. Um, it's tripled that probably. And in fact, I would argue that it would be a much higher number if people could actually place orders um, for pickup or for delivery, uh, but they're having trouble just finding slots. And so the number ends up being much lower and they end up having to go to the store. I think that number will probably pull back to somewhere closer around 5%. Um, again, because people are using it on necessity right now rather than as a preference. Um, and so I, I think we're going to see a pull forward of about one or two years on e-commerce and in grocery in particular, because it was such a low number already, 
we'll probably see a pull forward of about two to three years uh, where we expected them to be um, on that mark. So that's that's kind of my thoughts. And, uh, you know, of course, Sutria might have her own views on that. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think that there'll be um, some acceleration, but but certainly not uh, an overnight shift, which is going to be insane. I mean, we'll go from, you know, single digit penetration in grocery to maybe um, mid to high single digit penetration, but we're not going to go from like five to 50% online grocery penetration in a year. Um, no market has seen that. So I, I, I think that we just need to be realistic in, in the expectations expectations. And, and Brendan is right, because the experience for a lot of e-commerce hasn't been great. And I think that it just points to how, um, how short sighted a lot of our assumptions are. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, same day shipping and, you know, two day and is two day the standard. And what I think that this environment has has shown is that, it's only a standard when your competition is offering that. But if if even Amazon is not able to deliver in two days, then then the entire ecosystem slows down. Yeah, good point. And we've been talking a lot about the latter stages of this whole process, but we have to talk a little bit about the supply chain issues too. I mean, the toilet paper issue, as we might, as we might want to call it, right? What, this has obviously exposed some weaknesses, maybe based on human behavior, consumer behavior that might be a little um, sensitive at the moment, shall we say. But are there systemic supply chain issues that need to be resolved that this is exposed? Well, I, I think that there are different parts of the supply chain to break the to, to break it all down. I mean, there's there's the factory um, that's making the product. There is the the line hauls and the trucking solution that brings the product to wherever it needs to go. You have the distribution center of the retailer, and then you have the product actually getting on the shelf. And that's that's essentially the the main buckets of of the supply chain. And what we've seen is that it varies um, tremendously where the, you know, in January, it was at the factory level. Um, in March and April, it was more at the store level. Um, to some degree, it was also about the production of, of how many rolls of paper towels and toilet paper that you could get. But a large part of the challenge was whether or not retailers were replenishing quickly enough whether or not they had workers in their distribution centers to actually fill the orders. Um, so all of those things, I think, the challenges were different at different parts of the experience. Um, you know, there are definitely questions about, do we need to just completely change our uh, manufacturing location mix? Do we need to diversify into more, more regions than we've ever had before? Um, you know, and then there were, there were questions also about how do you how do you smooth out some some of the demand and um, you know but at the same time how do you also not get yourself into the the challenges of a bullwhip effect and you know you kind of project out for the future you know kind of the few weeks that you had the bursts of stockpiling um, so so I, I think that that there will be some changes but I don't know that this necessarily 
was a huge call out of the disaster of, of, of our supply chain. I would argue that we've, for the most part, got most of the essential products to people um, as needed. And the most important thing, which was food, has not been in short supply, at least in the United States. Um, so there are opportunities to optimize, but I, I wouldn't characterize the issue here as having been a supply chain disaster. Suturid is right. We've put these things into um, different stages of the pandemic and what they've impacted. Um, I do wonder if right now we're going to start to see some of those issues, for example, with Tyson Foods and others announcing that their facilities are going to need to close because the workers in the processing plants are starting to get sick. And so now they have to shut down production of, you know, processing chicken, right, and things like that. And, and so while we haven't had necessarily you know, major breaks in sort of that grocery line, I do wonder if that's going to come along. A big part of the supply chain breakdown, though, occurred because of not one thing, but many things. And if you understand how supply chain kind of works, um, they're made to weather minor breakdowns. There's redundancies, there's processes, there's um, B plans, you know, there's lots of things that people do. The problem is what happened is that lots of supply chain things broke down all at once. Right, from customers shifting to a very specific set of items that were needed quickly, to stores closing down so they couldn't get product out of there, to manufacturers, especially over in China, not being able to ship items over to us. Um, you know, like even now they're talking about how, uh, you know, milk producers, while uh, some places can't get milk, there's, there's milk producers dumping milk into, um, you know, the drains because of the fact that they can't get it to um, outlets in order to sell it or the right kinds of milk, the right packaging of milk to sell it uh, in time for it to expire. So as you can see, there's lots of different moving parts and pieces in supply chain that have broken down at different parts and in different ways. As end consumers, we don't see a whole lot of that. We see it when toilet paper runs out, you know, and, and like hand sanitizer, we saw that as a breakdown too early. Um, there were elements of that. Um, I, I do think that there is going to be a real review after this of what broke down for who and how did it happen. If I can go into what I think this means, though, because I think this is a really important point. The question for me as an analyst and that I would pose to the retail industry is, will you do something about it? Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this coming back, you know, God forbid, in October, November, December of this coming year. And I wonder how many retailers are going to say, okay, supply chain is where we need to fix it. And I don't think they will. And, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to insult anybody by saying this, but I think what's going to end up happening is that retailers are going to take a look and say, we missed on our top line number. We missed on our bottom line number. We've got to do what we can to try to make up those numbers by the end of the year. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of companies shifting dollars out of investments in technology and things like that and moving it into marketing to try to win those customers back as they come back to buying. Um, there's gonna be a lot of pent up demand. There's gonna be a lot of sort of feelings that after all this time, consumers have reset their consideration set and who they're willing to buy from. So I see retailers rushing to do marketing, which I think makes sense, but only in the context of us not having to go through this again. If we go through this again, and once again, if it's worse, coming up than it is this time, I, I do worry that supply chain won't be able to handle it once again, and maybe even worse. I'd, I'd like to dig in a little bit there, 
Brendan, on something that you're sort of pointing to in terms of, you know, shoppers today are just going where they can get what they're looking for and maybe not, um, they're sort of like, I don't know, a loyalty tax to the pandemic, right? Where um, they may be, they perhaps used to be loyal to a specific retailer or location or whatever, and that's just not a luxury that people have right now. They're going to go where the supply is. Um, do we, I mean, that is my assumption. Is that a fair assumption? And is that a long-term impact for certain retailers? And do we think potentially this investment in marketing will kind of re-level how consumers and shoppers, um, you know, have a relationship with certain brands? You know, I think if you look at the numbers and Suturita has published some, some research on this about the industries and categories that are really down quite a bit. Um, I think there will be a, a, a little bit of a reset in consumers' minds um, about where do I get my furniture from? Where do I, where am I going to go buy a car from? Where am I going to buy some of these more luxury items or things that I, you know, large appliances, things like that, where we've been, we, we could be sitting this in, in this for quite some time. And so what ends up happening is as we're coming out of it, I'm going to start to see marketing messages that aren't all about, you know, we feel bad. We're here from you during the coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think we're going to start to see more selling being done. And again, I think there'll be an urgency, a sense of urgency by retailers about making up some capital um, and moving into that. So I think, think you're going to see a lot of people getting really aggressive. Remembering, we're going to be coming out of this during some major timeframes for retail. Back to school, right? Um, Thanksgiving and, and Black Friday, and then holiday. So that, that's a big deal. This is a big time for retailers, and they're not going to be thinking, hey, I should sink my dollars into supply chain right now and fix that just in case this comes back, because that's usually looked at as a cost center, not a revenue driving center. Um, and so I do think there's going to be a wave of companies out there trying to win that customer, particularly if they've got a mindset that they're resetting who they want to shop with. Brandon Suturito, we, we've mentioned Amazon a couple of times, no surprise, on, given the topic. But I feel like we've always thought of Amazon as sort of the defining company out there, right? What they did, everybody else had to kind of step up and, and meet it to try and stay alive. Does this situation, you know, the, the COVID world that we've been through and are in, does that amplify that, make that more the case? Or does it sort of reset the playing fields um, in some ways for other retailers to, to jump back in? What I'll say is that I don't know that a lot of what Amazon has done through the course of this has been necessarily exemplary. Um, I don't know that they've delivered great customer experiences. I don't know that they've delivered great experiences for a lot of their sellers. They actually cut off a lot of the non-essential goods. Um, and I don't know that they've done um, the best for their employees either. And But that said, I, I also don't see a scenario where Amazon doesn't come out ahead at the end of this. Um, we know that uh, the, a significant portion of consumers, I think the last survey that we had was well over 20% are, um, are going to stay with the e-commerce channel um, after having shifted um, because this is the only place where you can often get the goods that you want. And the number one place where people go online um, when they are looking for, for, for e-commerce solutions 
options is, is of course, Amazon. Um, so regardless of whether or not the experience was a great one, I think that they just pick up a ton of share um, at the end of this. And, uh, and that even if they lose some of it, they still end up with a net, net gain. Um, I think that there are opportunities, though, that that other companies um, can can glean from it. In particular, brands uh, brands that have unique assortments, brands that can better control their distribution. Um, they have an opportunity to to have a direct to consumer relationship that doesn't need to be dependent on Amazon. And I think that's what this has this is exposed. Um, we have seen a lot of consumers really actively embrace in store pickup and curbside pickup, which are, of course, store solutions that um, that are much more broadly available for retailers that have bigger store footprints than, than even Whole Foods. So I, I think that there, there are things that companies can do to hold their own. Um, but to answer the bigger question, I mean, of course, Amazon is going to come out ahead at the end of this. Amazon absolutely comes out a winner. Um, I'm in agreement with that. I also think that um, the industry kind of looks at Amazon as a retailer. Um, and while that's the easy way of looking at them, I think they come out a winner, not just because of the retail aspect of it, but really because of the exposure they've gotten on many fronts from this. There's many people now sitting home watching on their fire stick, right? Or they got one because they're going to be quarantined now for a while. They've gotten to use their smart speakers a lot more because they got nothing else to do but learn how those things work, right? And so you got to remember that Amazon's total strategy isn't just to win your retail business. It's to win your business, right? To win your mindset. The goal of Amazon is to get you to say the word Amazon every day of your life, not necessarily to buy from them every day. And so people using all these services from them, they're taking more photos, which are then getting stored on their, uh, if you have a prime membership getting stored at Amazon, um, there's uh, also the uh, pantry delivery and they, they have Whole Foods, right? And so there's so many parts and pieces that people are utilizing from Amazon right now that goes beyond just getting a phone charger from them. And I think that's where people are missing that the relationship that Amazon's been able to build during this period goes well beyond just making a purchase. It goes it goes into how much have they inserted themselves into our life to an even greater degree than they have in the past. Yeah. So it's not it's not that they've provided a couple of great client experiences or customer experiences, Sutrita, to your point, or have been amazing to their customers or employees, but they've become even more ubiquitous into their customers' lives during this process. So how could they not win? Right. Exactly right. So coming out of all of this, um, trying to think of the picture here. I mean, retail obviously have been in an industry that's been struggling a bit um, over the years. Now it's hit hard through this scenario. And Brendan, back to the point you made earlier, you know, hopefully coming out of this, we're heading into maybe back to school, holiday season, et cetera. That's a lot of pressure to try and rebound as as fast as humanly possible. What steps should retailers be making or taking now to be successful in that turnaround? Well, now I talk to a lot of retail professionals on a pretty regular basis, and I will tell you some of the things that I'm hearing from them um, are they're, they're really asking themselves, how has this retailer treated me over this time frame? And asking themselves, is this the company I want to go back to? This, to me, is something that I think retailers are going to really struggle to get back to. When you open up an entire state that's willing to go back to shopping, the question you have to ask yourself is, 
do I have the staff still sitting there waiting to come back into the fold? You know, think about the fact that Macy's furloughed 130,000 people. You know, retail was always and always has been fairly transient uh, industry where people, you know, are saying, I'm not going to wait around for Macy's to maybe hire me back in you know, July or October, November, or who knows when. I'm going to go find another job. I think the danger is that retailers think these people are just sitting around. Um, and I think that it's going to be a real challenge getting people not only to come back that they originally had before all this, but retailers usually up their hiring processes going into holiday season. They'll add 10, 20, even 30%, maybe even 40 for some um, staff going into holiday season. So now take all the people that have left, add to them the holiday hiring they would normally have to do. That's a massive undertaking of trying to get people back to work, coordinating that kind of uh, effort um, is going to be a real challenge, quite frankly. And I think that retail is going to get caught flat-footed if they don't right now start building out some processes for getting people back to work and, and getting people back in seats. Sudrita, did you have anything else to add there? The only thing that I would add is that the, um, you know, an even higher level challenge is that these companies stay alive until Q4. And um, particularly in the apparel sector, um, I, uh, I did a survey with some retailers with, with one of our, our partners. And in that, a quarter of apparel respondents are worried they're not even going to be around in Q4. So I think that um, the near-term issues are really, really dramatic and um, they are they, they largely res revolve around um, cash preservation. How do you um, how do you how do you cut orders that may be in flux right now? Um, how do you draw down lines of credit? How do you cut any type of expenses that are non-essential at this moment in time and try to make it that far until you get to social distancing going away, essentially? Um, we have heard that some retailers won't even be able to open partially, um, that it's an all or nothing thing. They can't just turn on part of their system. They have to turn it all on or leave it all off, which means that, you know, just because, you know, five states or 10 states were to reopen, that doesn't mean that they can participate in, in that, in that shift. Um, so, so I think that there's, there's some really, really dramatic issues coming up. Um, we heard that Neiman Marcus is likely going to file for bankruptcy any day. We are hearing that some other major department stores are missing their debt payments. Um, and what that means is that it means Chapter 11 in the near term and possibly even a pretty fast prog progression to Chapter 7 um, for some of these companies. And that that worries me, um, and I think that's that's what is the the factor that worries a whole bunch of people in the retail industry is um, is that how many of these companies are going to be able to hang on and for how long. Sutri brings up a good point. Many of these retailers may not be around, but to that point, I think it's also important to note of the things we said earlier about you know this is there's going to be some companies that are going to have customers that won't be able to shop with them anymore because they're not in business anymore. And so this is a time for maybe those companies that do stick around to, to, to be more successful. Maybe they, they find the employees that they need coming out of this from those retailers. They find the companies, or excuse me, the consumers that they need to fill that revenue and margin gap to be more successful coming out of this. So 
Um, while it is a bad thing and, it, and it's a horrible thing, and we don't ever wish a company to go out of business or for people to be out of jobs, I think that the the industry will likely have to pick up the slack from those companies anyway, because consumers spend. We spend, you know, and, and coming out of this, remember, there's a lot of people that have received government funding coming out of this. You know, this is not like the recession where people lost wealth and all the money went to big banks back then, right? And, and, all, and consumers didn't really see that. Now we've got the government pumping trillions into individual consumers and small businesses. So this is where you're going to see a little bit more of a getting back to it, getting back into it. Um, a little faster than we came out of the recession. So I think those retailers who do stick around or able to stick around are going to have to pick up on that, but to their benefit as well. Thank you both for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.